0: We're going to be in Luke chapter 6 today, verse eight, pages 862 and 863 of the Bible that's in the chairs, uh, verses 39 through 42 is our focal passage. But I want to, I want to highlight something, I talk about it quite a bit, is our, our Version Live event. If you have a smart device, Android, iPhone, whatever, uh, download the Version app. And on that app, there's, a, there's an option to select events under their menu, and you can go every week. The notes are there. The scripture verses are there. Quotes that are either on the screen or not on the screen are there. You can look them up. You can take your own notes. You can save it for later or email it to yourself so that uh, you can continue to think about how the Lord is dealing with you in the midst of this time. And Ultimately, we do this because we want to resource you. We want to give you uh, resources, equip you, in order to just continue dealing with the scripture continue walking in the truth of god's word and so uh and, and really i guess you could test me in it you know and challenge uh, just ensure that i'm i'm teaching truth and uh, calling people to truth as you study more deeply and so i would just encourage you to do that I would, it's a great resource and thankful that we can do it but would love for you to be able to take advantage of it so Luke chapter 6, we're back there today, and in this part of the sermon, in this part of Jesus' sermon, Luke begins to kind of turn a corner. He begins to turn a corner and sum up a lot of the points that he's been making and really bringing Jesus' sermon to a conclusion. We're actually going to get to the conclusion of that sermon next week, and we've taken our time in it. We've kind of slowed down in this process of working through Luke. Over over the last five weeks, in fact, we've been dealing with just this sermon, and and. And there's a need for that. There's a reality that we need that. Our culture is all about moving on. Like, okay, I got that aspect. I got that principle. Now I'm going to move on. I'm going to add another principle. And what we've not done necessarily well is, oh, we, we got all this knowledge, but we're not really good at applying it. And so... As I began to study and and prepare for these sermons through this sermon of Jesus, I I realized we need to to soak in this and let it just saturate us all the way through, and I've been blessed by the reality of hearing people every week really coming to me and and just, man, you're not going to believe what just happened to me yesterday and how that helps me deal with it, or This I'm in the middle of this situation and circumstance in my life, and now I have a better understanding of what I need to do, how I need to respond. And 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 it's been exciting to me to see that the words that Jesus spoke two thousand years ago are just as relevant today as they were then. It's it's powerful. It's a powerful reminder that that we aren't just wasting our time as we take our time and work through this. This has really blown up my life. It's challenged me in a number of areas um, and encouraged me in a number of areas. but ultimately helped me look more at Jesus and what he's done and I hope it's done the same for you but today kind of as we turn that corner Jesus gets practical on us it's not that he hasn't had practical information for us already but he gets more practical as he helps us see how we become these people he's called us to be in fact if you go back through this sermon that he preached he's telling us over and over and over to do something he's giving us command after command after command and now he kind of helps us see, he helps us kind of begin to build a foundation or a framework with which, by, by which we will be able to ultimately actually accomplish these commands and, and be these people that he's called us to be. And so that's what we're really going to be dealing with today as we read verses 39 and study from verses 39 through 42. Read along or follow along with me. He says, <clears throat> uh, Whoa. Totally have lost. Me. There it is. Oh, sorry, it's been a long morning. Here we go. He has. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, "Brother, let me take the speck out of your the, the speck that is in your eye"? When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out, or take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So Jesus has four questions and, and it's two pairs really. It's two pairs of questions that gives us two parables that give us two very practical teachings about how we are to fulfill or how we are going to be able to fulfill all that he has been calling us to through this Sermon, they kind of give us a humorous perspective, kind of a, a, a hyperbolic perspective of, of what he's doing. For example, I came across a, an illustration earlier in the week as I was studying. I came across this illustration that paints a picture or sketches a picture of what it looks like to have a log in your eye when your brother has a speck in his eye. And it, it's, it's, it actually is kind of humorous. Jesus actually has a sense of humor. He doesn't mind us laughing a little bit, but his intention is not simply to make light of the situation. His intention is to help us begin to see how absolutely absurd we can be at times. To see just how illogical the logic of the world can be. To see how unwise the wisdom of the world can be. He's really challenging us. He's already been giving us these counter-cultural commands, giving us this counter-intuitive way of life to live by. And now he's challenging us to help us see if we're going to accomplish all that he's commanded us. We're going to have to have his advice. We're going to have to have his help. And here's, here's the thing. If we don't know what we're talking about, if, we, if you don't know what I'm calling you to, then, then today's sermon is really going to fall on, on deaf ears. It's going to fall before blind eyes, maybe, is a better way to say it. Being. So we have to do some review because many of you have not been through these passages. So just flip back to, to the beginning of this sermon. It begins in chapter 6, verse 20. Flip back in your Bible. Just, just begin to look at what He does. Or what He calls us to. In, in, in verses 20 through 26, He begins to tell us that we're blessed if we do one thing and, and woe and warned if we do another thing. If, if, if our way of life is one way, then, then we can count ourselves blessed. If, if our way of life is another way, then we better be warned. We better open our eyes. We better pay attention. There is stark warning, but, but in, these, in these blessings and in these woes, there's a real central theme that he calls us to. Ultimately, he calls us to love God first. This is the command that he's given. This is the most important command when he was tested. This is the most important command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and body. To love the Lord your God with your whole being. That's what he's calling us to. He's saying, set aside the pursuits of life, the pursuits of this world, popularity and happiness and comfort and and, and, and uh, wealth. Set these things aside. It's not bad to have them. It's not bad if you gain them along the way. It's not bad if you ultimately make some money and or or ultimately are liked by people. But he warns those people whose lives are driven by this priority. If your priority is is not loving God, but rather being loved by man, you're in danger. But who of us, how in the world do we love God first? I mean, who does that well? Who's got that figured out? I mean, who, who is able to do this? Who's able to accomplish this? That's what he calls us to. Does that not challenge us? Does that not, does that not set us on edge? Does that not help us see a, a greater, bigger priority? Does that not challenge us at the very depths of who we are to, to live in a countercultural manner, to live opposed to the world, to live in a different direction than the world lives? Absolutely. He goes on in verses 27 through 38, and he calls us to love others. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your others. But in this instance, He doesn't doesn't limit your love to your neighbors or to those who who you would appreciate or who would be easy to love. He actually emphasizes your enemies. Those who would offend you. Those who sin against you. Those who would harm you if they had opportunity. Those who are looking to, to, to stand against you. Your adversary. Love your enemies. And by the time he gets to thirty-one, he breaks it out in the golden rule that he he doesn't just limit it to enemies, but he says love everyone in this way, as you would do unto others, as you would have done unto yourself, you do unto others. Proactively seek to bless people because you want to be blessed. That's what he calls us to. Is that not shocking? Is that not beyond us? Is that not bigger than we really have capability of doing on our own? Does that not put us in a place to ask the question, how in the world is it going to get done? How am I going to be able to do this? I see myself falling and failing regularly. How am I going to be this person? In all of these verses, in this call to love God, in this call to love others, he calls us to trust him. See, as you answer the call, as you pick up the cross to follow Christ, as you love others sacrificially, beneficially, and and proactively, as you seek the benefit of others for the glory of God, as you strive to live this life, it's going to cost you something. You're going to have to give up the pursuit of wealth. You're going to have to give up the pursuit of popularity. You're going to have to give up the pursuit of comfort. And and that's what he's calling us. That's what he's saying all the way through. And he's, he's reminding us, though whatever you give up, whatever you walk away from, whatever you set down so that you might pursue these commands, I can assure you, he says, that you will be blessed by God. You will not be left empty-handed. Now, he may not give you all that you long for in all the ways that you wish he would, but he has blessed you with eternal blessings, every blessing in the spiritual realms. He has given you all all you need for life and godliness. That's the promise of Scripture, and you see that woven all the way. So he's calling you not just to love God first, not just to love others, but trust God ultimately. And quit depending upon your own self and your own own wisdom and your own ways and your own power. Put these things into practice and trust that he's going to come through. But nobody teaches us that in this world. In fact, the whole whole teaching that we receive, the whole perspective that we're given by this world, by by the perspectives and wisdom of the world, is is, is counter to this. Instead, instead of, of loving God first and loving others sacrificially, beneficially, proactively, compassionately, the world says, hey... Don't let yourself be taken advantage of. You don't want to become a doormat for someone to walk all over. So even as we teach these things, even as we walk through the sermon, there's the pressure to not take it too far. Now I know we can, we can take it too far, but, but there's pressure to make sure we qualify things that Jesus never qualified. He just simply said, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you. Pray for those. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who harm you. That's what he said. He didn't give us any qualifications. When you're slapped, turn your other cheek. He didn't give a qualification. But the world would tell us don't let yourself be taken advantage of, don't let yourself become a doormat. It speaks of tolerance and love up to the point in which you disagree with it. And then it begins calling you names and threatening to burn your house down. That happened in our own city. A man stood for what he believed in, and he was threatened that they were going to come burn his house down. It's a tolerant group of people we live with, right? It demands that we take care of ourselves first. It's really ironic to me. In the, in, the, in the airline, you know, like you're sitting down and you're going to take off and the safety briefing by the, by the flight attendant is going on before you get in the air. And, and they always come to that part where, where the, if, if there's a rapid depressurization, oxygen mask will drop. But make sure you take care of yourself before you take care of those with you. Now, I've seen masks come down. And there wasn't anybody thinking about anybody around them. They were thinking about, i got to get that mask on. It's ironic to me that we even have to say that out loud because our culture is so driven for selfish perspective, selfish agenda, selfish benefit. In fact, I wish I could just say that this was true of our culture. The truth is, it's the truth among us as a people of God. We've come to a point in our... in which we are less concerned with the good of others. Within the church, we have come to a point where we are less concerned with the good of others and more concerned with the consumer goods that a church would offer us. Tell me that's not the way we're taught to go and seek out whether we're going to join a church or not. is what they have to offer us. not how you can be involved in the mission, not how you can be a part of what God is doing, not not following the right leadership or not, but are they going to give me what I want? We're less concerned with God's mission than our own. We're happy to talk about God's mission. In fact, a lot of people want to be a part of a church that speaks a lot about God's mission so that they can feel like they're on God's mission until you begin to ask them to participate in God's mission And then, man, I I, I can't give too much time to this. I can't give too much money to this. I can't give too much energy because I got other things that got to be done. Like we're always trying to figure out how how we keep our 90 and give God just that 10. You know, oh, well, I gave my 10 and checked my box, keep my 90. We, just like everyone else in the world, want all the good that Christ has to offer with as little as the cost of pos- as, with as little cost as possible. I wish that I could say that that was about the church at large. But the statistics hold true within our own church. Jesus has not called us to some pacifist position, but to be so passionately pursuing the good of others and the glory of his name that our life has to take on a radically new direction and a radically new purpose. We call people to come and be involved. We're we're, we're petitioning, begging, if you will, to just get involved with kids' ministry. It happens about once every two months. It's our children for crying out loud. Why aren't, why aren't people knocking down the doors to go serve our children to make sure they hear about Jesus? They're not even our enemies. Those aren't even the difficult ones to love. Those aren't the hard ones to deal with. Please, please. Don't, don't take this as an angry rant. I long for the health of our church and I plead with Christ for the good of our people. But until we quit living like everyone else in the world, pursuing our selfish agendas and desiring our life first and not loving our enemy and not loving those who Christ has given us to love, not sacrificially giving up ourselves, dying to our selfishness, not going to see this happen we are not going to see the the sermon that christ proclaimed and the commands he called us to obey fulfilled so long as we don't put him first and don't put his desires and don't don't put others before ourselves. this is the thing that we got to have help to get here this has been the story, just, just to believe you of any issue, that this is just our people. This has been the story since the church was birthed, even in the culture that Jesus was preaching in, the culture that he was speaking to. It was an absolute virtue. It was taught by the religious leaders of the day. For I mean, essentially, the pastors of the day were going out teaching people to love your neighbor, and, and it's okay, hate your enemy. And here comes Jesus teaching this countercultural idea. In fact, this is the reason why in Luke 10, when Jesus has just answered, what's the most important commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And he says, the seconds like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The scribe stands up, the lawman stands up, and he wants to justify himself. Well, he says, Who's my neighbor? Because he knows in his heart of hearts, having been taught. If I can figure out who my neighbor is, I'll know who to love, and then I'll be free to hate those who aren't my neighbor. It's a whole new spin on the Good Samaritan. That's exactly what this man was struggling with. Just like these people that he was speaking to, just like every other person that has existed within the church, we need help. Jesus gives us in these two parables very practical help. He's good to us, not to leave us where we are. He finds us where we are, and he leads us out of that and into the light. And so he addresses these issues. And first he asks, can a blind man lead a blind man? I mean, immediately you're like, well, that's probably not a good idea, right? Because immediately we're qualifying that in our mind. Like We don't really need the second question. We don't really need to, to hear, you know, or, or is that going to go good? You know, are, are they not going to both end up in a pit? We, we already are qualifying that in our mind. And I don't want you to hear Jesus just making light of a person's handicap or their limitation. He's not, he's not making fun of that in any way, although it does draw kind of a, a satirical or hyperbo- hyperbolic perspective out, an exaggerated perspective out for us. There's real spiritual truth within this physical issue. He's not just sitting there making fun. In his day, he is speaking directly against the religious leaders. But in our day, the reality is he is speaking against anyone that would stand and lead and yet is not qualified to be there. Will it not go bad? Is it a good idea? Is it not dangerous to see, to let a blind man lead a blind man? Is it not dangerous for you and me, brothers and sisters, to follow people who are blind? Are we going to step up behind that? Are we going to to give in to that? It is dangerous to follow blind people. But it happens all the time. Not long ago, I went to well, it was a couple of years ago. I went to the Field Museum with with uh, my my family, and we we were able to go in. and And they have Sue. I don't know if they still have her there, but Sue's a Tyrannosaurus Rex, the skeleton of Tyrannosaurus Rex. And you walk in, she was right right in the middle, as big as nice. It was pretty cool to be able to see it and read about you know how they found the bones and and how many bones were real and how many weren't real. And uh, most of them, it's one of the, it's the most complete. If I remember right, it's the most complete Tyrannosaurus Rex that's been found to date. And so it's pretty cool, right? I mean, it was pretty neat. And then, and then as an addition to this exhibit of Sue, there is a, a, an exhibit. Uh, a, a, there was a dinosaur exhibit. I don't know if it's still there either. But, but you walk into the exhibit hall, and as you walk by, as you walk in, you kind of weave in and out of some you know, booths with different things. And all along, as you step into this exhibit hall, all along the first part of it, is ardor surrenderings of, of the origins of life. Where did life come from? It's a big question, right? Like, if we kind of know where life came from, then we, we kind of understand some things about our responsibilities and, and what's going on around us. It was all artist renderings, all drawings, all paintings, and they're, high, they're lit up, you know, and there's, there's wording by, like real scientific words listed out there, and and even people all along the way, I mean, stopping and reading this stuff and, and, and just being moved by it. And, and even I heard one person talking about the, the reality of what they were reading, and they were like, this is the truth. I mean, like, they've proven this, taken it as 100% fact. And that struck me as I walked by, because for me, I was like walking through thinking... These are idiots. Just to be honest, that's what I was thinking. The Lord has convicted me since, so I don't need you to do that later. But I'm walking through, and I get past that point, that weaving in and out of those booths, get past that point and step out into another exhibit hall that's wide open, and there's more dinosaur bones. And so it was crazy because there was like this dichotomy, there was like this this transition, it was 180 degrees different. One, it's all artist rendering, it's all theory, it's all this is our idea that we're presenting to you as fact. But then you're able to walk out and see fact. Like dinosaurs really walked the earth. If you still argue the fact that dinosaurs didn't exist, you've lost the argument. They found them. They're real. Do we know everything about them based on their skeletons? Probably not. Some of that's made up too. But they really lived. It's real fact. It's real. It's tangible. You can see it in front of you. It dawned on me. It dawned on me. These are blind people following blind people. And blind people acting as if they know it all and have found it all and have all the answers. And if you'll just follow us, we'll teach you truth. The blind leading the blind. And so based on their... Form of truth. They've been able to deny God and have depended upon some astronomical accident that happened when lightning hit a puddle and accidentally caused life to exist. What a crack. One more maybe hits a little closer to home. Is probably a little more current with what's going on in the political environment within which we live today. Maybe, Maybe this This election cycle, more than any other, has demonstrated to us that our hope is not in who's going to sit in the White House. You get it? It's not, I don't care if Trump wins or Hillary, or Bernie for that matter. If she gets arrested, I don't know what's going to happen with her, but that's, they are not the answer to our problems. They do not have the answer to our problems. But here we got these two groups of people fighting and always trying to one up the other. And on one side of the argument, you have these people who, because of all the mass shootings and mass killings that have happened in the last year, they're like, oh, gun control. we gotta, we got to control guns. If we can control guns, we'll save lives. Oh, by the way, we should make sure ladies have the right to choose whether they abort their baby or not. Now hear me say this, I'm not trying to come down on you if you have walked through that and there is grace, there is restoration. But do you see how inconsistent that perspective is? We want to save lives, but we're, but we're promoting the death of untold numbers of unborn babies. And on the other hand, you got, you know, just in case you think I'm Anti-Democrat, and you're sitting there as a Republican thinking, yeah, you go get them. Uh, You Republicans are just as jacked up as the Democrats are. Because while you're saying, I'm promoting life, and I'm against abortion, and I'm not going to vote for anybody, this is my issue. You stand there and you fight for your rights to own a gun, because if somebody comes against you, they're getting theirs. What did Jesus say to do with our enemies? Oh, God. Neither side has the answer. These are the blind leading the blind. Do not be deceived. Quit buying in to the rhetoric and the false logic and the empty wisdom. You will run off a cliff. It is leading you to destruction. And Jesus, he's good enough, he's gracious enough, he's loving enough that he calls us to something more. More. He gives us very practical advice. Follow the right leader. Follow the right leader. It's really that simple. Quit following blind people. Quit thinking that they got the answers. Quit thinking that they got it right. Follow the right leader. Ultimately, this is Jesus. He is the right leader. There's no one that sur- surpasses him. There's no one better than him. There's no one that sees more than him. He's the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one goes to the Father but through him. He knows the way, and he can show you the way. That's a little more difficult for us. Not like we have him walking around in the flesh still today. When Jesus didn't leave us empty. You see, he raised up apostles. In fact, if you think back to the beginning of the sermon that we've been studying for five weeks, he had just come out. He had just come out of a whole night of prayer. He comes down from the mountain onto this flat, level place. And from the great number of disciples, he calls 12 to lead. You see, he raised up leaders. And then you follow that pattern through the New Testament, and you see those leaders raise up leaders. And in fact, all the way through, they show us what kind of people we should be following even today. So I just want to hopefully equip you, educate you on knowing the right leader so that you can follow the right leader. First, I would call you to look for Jesus' character Look for Jesus' character. Look for people who would love like Christ. Look for people who are not caught up in the, in the pursuits of the rest of the world. Look for people who are, 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 you're seeing these commands lived out in. Or another place to look is Paul established, Peter established qualifications for us by which to look for 1 Timothy three, 1 through13, -- I'm sorry, Titus 1, five through nine, first Peter five, one through 13 i am sorry titus one 5 through 1 peter 5 one through 4 Every one of these passages help you see. they paint a picture of what a leader in the church should look like. And it heavily, heavily favors their character. What the person's like, the maturity, the spiritual maturity of the person. In his book, uh, Redefining Leadership, Joseph Stowell, it's it's a leadership book I just finished reading not long ago, very, very good, writes, character drives the process of successful leadership. When we process our leadership by character, the quality, the outcomes will be measured by a thriving culture where people are valued and not used, where the leader is respected and not feared, where a leader is trusted and not doubted, where the moral authority of the leader's life makes others glad to cooperate and achieve, where grace underwrites the administration of the employee handbook and where the leader's example stimulates those he serves to live and lead as the leader lives and leads. A leader who is chosen to lead by character motivates a community of followers who gladly embrace the mission of the enterprise and who are happily motivated to deliver quality outcomes. This is radically different than what you would hear in in a in a corporate setting. It's not that they deny character. But when we do reviews inside of a corporate setting, we're looking at competence, we're looking at results, we're looking for outcomes. And what ends up happening is a person delivers and we promote them to the next level of leadership and they deliver and there's these outcomes and they, they, they deliver and there's these outcomes. And we do that to the point that they can no longer deliver and then we're like, you suck. You're terrible. And then you fire them because they can't do what they need to do. Because we're not looking at a person's character, we're promoting them based on their competence. To the point that they got no competence. You know why so many evangelicals are having trouble with Trump? He's probably extremely competent. But who is that man? I mean who is he really? His character stinks. Look for Jesus' character in the people you follow, and this isn't just organizational. This isn't just about inside the church. This is anything you anything you give yourself to, anything you're going to devote your time to, anything you're going to devote your effort and your money to, at, at every level. You look for the character in the person leading. If you don't see the character, including in the church, if you don't see the character of Christ, let me just free you now. You quit following. If you don't see Jesus' character at work, quit following. This is, this is risky for me. But, but I said it to the first service, I'll say it to you. There's not, a, there's not a pastor in this, in this, in this church. There's not a, not a deacon that we're bringing up in this church that I want in this church leading if they don't have Christ's character prominent in their lives. So if you see something, uh, some character flaw, some issue that is not Christ like, then tell us. And if it's me, tell me. Because I'm leading people and I don't want to lead people blindly, I don't want to lead people off the edge of a cliff into the depths of a pit. Quit following. If you don't see Christ's character, you quit following because you're following the wrong leader. Look for Jesus' character. Look for Jesus' calling. There's a reality we don't. I don't think we understand this completely anymore. Because oh man, I'm called to do this. I'm called to do. That. I've got all these these feelings and emotions that drives us and. And I recognize that that's some of the ways that we understand calling. But we establish that calling like, God's called me to do this. We think that means he's called us to take on this title and then start doing this work. But if he's called us to do something, we can't help but do it. There's an inner, there's an inner drive just to do it regardless of whether we're receiving credit for it or not. Look for his calling on a person's life. First Timothy 3 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's a noble task, doesn't mean it's a noble desire. How do we determine? We have to determine if it's a noble desire or not. He's aspiring to something. Is he already doing it? Or is he demanding he's an elder and overseer, and you better give him the title, or else he's going to leave your church? No. If you're not already acting like an elder, you're not called to be an elder. When you grow up, men, when you grow up and you start acting like an elder and you're able to teach and handle the word of God and you have a character that looks like Christ, that's when we'll know, that's when we'll be able to affirm that, yep, God called you to be an elder. God called me to plant a church. You know how I know He called me to plant a church? You're here. <laughs> Like, I could tell you, oh, God called me to plant the church. Happens all the time. People walk in. I think it's because of the Acts 29 network as our association with. We, the, the guys are walking in. The door. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a church planner. You're, you're planting a church? You're, like, you're, you're already going? No, no, God called me to plant the church. Well, who are you sharing Jesus with? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'll do that. How are you helping the mission now? How, who are you serving? Who are you teaching? Who are you handling the word in front of? Well, that, that, I'll do that when... How do you know God called you to it then? ah, you you, you long for it. Well, let's walk together for a while. We'll we'll affirm that calling. 1 Peter 5, 2, another place. Peter deals with this. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. That inner drive, that inner commitment to to serve and love people like you have been loved. You look for Jesus' calling on them. If, if God has called them to it, they will be doing it. It won't just be hearsay. It won't just be something I'm going to get around to when and if somebody recognizes it in me first. You won't help but be able to do it because that call is too strong. So we look for his character, we look for his calling, and we look for Jesus-like competence. Oh, there's the competence. See, we're not against competence. We're not against a guy being able to, or, or even a, a lady being able to do what she's supposed to do. We need competence. It's important. But who sets the standard on, and what's the competence? Well, at least in the church, and I think even in the family, 1 Timothy 3, 2, Titus 1, 9, both call us to be able to teach. We have to be able to teach. 2 Timothy 2, 15, the last Letter that Paul ever wrote, probably in his mind, some of the most important words he was going to ever write. He says to Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You have to be able to interpret and teach the scripture. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, at the end of this letter, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. That's a big call. I mean, that's like a big deal, right? I'm standing in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, and I'm going to charge you with this. Preach the word. Don't follow someone that's always twisting it and teaching it in error. 1 Timothy 3, 4. One final competence that I think the Scripture calls us to, especially in the church, he must manage his own household well. If you can't lead in your house, you can't lead in the church. If a person doesn't have this kind of character, if the person doesn't have this kind of calling, if the person doesn't have this kind of of, uh, uh, competency, then they're blind. And if you follow them, you're going to run off a cliff into the depths of a pit and be destroyed with them. In fact, husbands, I think there's a special deal. We just need to deal with this right here. Husbands and fathers. Ephesians 5, love your wife like Christ loved the church. And then he goes on to say, washing her with the water of his word. Even in your home, this is your responsibility, God's call on you. If you want your wife to easily follow and submit as she's been called, you stand up and lead with character and calling and competency, handling the word rightly. This is what he's called us to. Don't follow blind people. Blind people don't lead other people. This is what he's this is what he said. Practical advice. If we're going to see his mission accomplished and we can't follow the wrong leader, we're going to accomplish the wrong mission. But then he moves on to the second set of questions. Why would you try to take a speck out of someone else's eye? Well, you got this big log sticking out of yours. Again, it's hyperbolic. It's exaggerated. The word "speck" would, would refer to an irritant in the in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Septuagint it, it's the same word. The, the dove came back carrying a carrying a branch. You know that's how we would how we would picture it, an olive branch. Well, it's the same exact word used here. So so it's not a speck of dust, like it's in imperce- it's imperceptible. But it's an irritant, but not nearly. It's obviously on a much smaller scale than the log sticking out of the other person's eye. But even log doesn't do this term justice. This is the center beam of a house, the one in which all the roof joists kind of rest on in the middle. Like this is the, this is the most important beam in the roof. It cracks and falls. It can't hold the weight. Then it's beginning. It's not that the others aren't important, but this is the, the base of it. This is, this is the, where the pressure exists. You got this big beam sticking out of your eye. You can't even get close because you're knocking people over with it all the time. You see the humor. But you're all worried. I mean, you're all worried. Like, I got this big log. I got, you got a little speck in your eye. Let me help you with that. You idiots. That's, sorry, God's convicted me on that. You don't have to remind me. That's what I, that's what I thought in that in the museum. I wasn't saying that to you. got this big old problem and they're like sitting around saying they got answers for people. What are you thinking? What Jesus says is maybe even harsher. You hypocrites. You hypocrites. You're all worried about somebody's little bitty issue while you're totally blind, totally ignorant, or purposefully ignoring your great problem. Again, very practical advice. Don't be a hypocrite. It's pretty plain. It's, pretty, it's right out there. Don't be this. Don't be a hypocrite. Well, How do we keep from that? I think first we confess before assess or strive to assist. Like we're all about looking at everybody else's problems. Like you'll know a hypocrite when they're always telling you about all the other issues in somebody's life, but they'll never confess that they have their own. You know anybody like that? Are you somebody like that? This is important because hypocrisy, it leaves us out. It leaves us unable to live out God's call. It it leaves us unable to, to be a person who loves sacrificially. It leaves us out of the ability to pursue Christ first because we're too busy looking down our noses at everyone, lifting up our chin and looking down our noses, and here we are better. Thank you, God, I'm not like these lowly people. Or we're a little more deceptive in it. We're awfully sacrificial, awfully servant-minded, all so that people begin to pat us on the back and tell us how good we are. All trying to prove to ourselves and everyone else, and yes, maybe even to God Himself, that we deserve position before Him. See, we will not be doing good for others when we act in this way. It actually becomes hurtful to them. Because while you're trying to pick that little speck out of their eye, you're beating them with your plank and possibly even blinding them. I'm struggling with this, and I continue to believe it more and more, but the further I go in my Christianity, the further I mature in my walk in faith, I come to realize the greatest sinner I know is me. It's me. It's really easy probably for you to agree with me, because I've, said some very direct things and called even our church on some direct things and yep, you're the big sinner here. Well, you need to be careful. Listen to Christ's words, you hypocrite. You see, I'm saying that and hoping that you'll, you'll, you'll affirm that statement from the first person perspective or at least handle me saying it. The biggest sinner you know is you. It's not an assumption. It's something I'm seeing in Scripture more and more, and I think even Paul understood it. He's writing to Timothy, and he's helping Timothy see how he's going to establish the church in Ephesus, and just before he gets to the qualifications for an elder, he deals with Timothy. He's talking to him about who he is, who, who, who Paul is, and he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And what I'm learning as I mature in my faith and grow in the perspective of who God is and how perfect and holy and righteous He is, what I'm learning is that I've been giving Paul a run for his money, that I've been competing for that title. I don't like to admit it, it's not like I want to stand up here and be proud of my sin. Don't misunderstand. That's why even as I come challenging you, I'm not standing up here in a place that says, "Oh, now I figured it out. You better do what I say." I'm standing here as this this person who recognizes, "I am the worst of the worst in this room. I am the greatest sinner. I know." 20 years in, he writes the letter to the book, to, he writes the letter to the church in Rome. By this time you'd think he'd have it figured out, right? I mean, come on, he's been planting churches, he's been writing scripture. You'd think he'd have it figured out, but he says Romans seven twenty-four, wretched man that I am. Twenty years in, he's still a wretch. And what is the speck in your brother's eye compared to the log that's hanging out of yours? Our greatest problem? that needs solving is not the sin of those around us, but the sin that resides within us. Oh man, we're all about assessing other people, all about standing out to assist other people without really dealing with the issue that's killing us. Spurgeon commenting on hypocrisy says, your maker says, thou shalt love me with all thine heart. It is no use for you to point your finger across the street at a minister whose life is inconsistent or at a deacon who is unholy or a member of the church who does not live up to his profession. When your maker speaks to you, he appeals to you personally. And if you should tell him, my Lord, I will not love thee because there are so many hypocrites, would not your own conscience condemn you of the absurdity of your reasoning? the inconsistency of fallen thought, the, the absurdity of fallen wisdom. He goes on, ought not your better judgment to whisper inasmuch as so many are hy- hypocrites take heed that you are not. And if there be so many pretenders who injure the Lord's cause by their lying and pretensions, so much the more reason why you should have the real thing and help to make the church sound and honest. When... When our Maker, when our God who created says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. When He says, Love God first. And love others, even your enemies. And trust Me for your gain. Trust Me for your blessing. Trust Me for the good that's to come to you. He is not speaking to the people around you. He is speaking to you. Each and every one of you and me. This is, he, he's not telling this to me for you. He's calling me to it. It's my responsibility. It's our responsibility to stand together to do these things. How are we going to get them done? We're going to follow the right leader and then we're not going to be hypocrites. Well, how are we going to keep from being hypocrites? We're going to look at that log in our eye and we're going to strive to see it picked out and put away. How are we going to do that? Man, look at the, look at the majesty Look at the beauty, look at the realness, look at the bigness, look at the holiness, look at the perfection, look at the grace, look at the mercy, look at the love of this eternal God who has always been the same and never changes. And you stand there in front of him for just a second. I think we'll all drop our heads, we'll all beat our chests. I don't deserve a thing from you. And then listen to him. Pick up your chin. I've given you the cross. I sent my son to die in your place for your sin, to deal with that log that hangs off your face. Put it away. You are my child. And because of me and through me and in me, you are blessed. Tell me that doesn't humble you for just a minute doesn't make you just swell with gratitude. See the beauty of this is, is that we don't have to live as these worms who are the worst of sinners because in Christ as Paul goes on in Romans 4 or Romans 7 what a wretched man I am who will deal with this body of sin Christ Jesus our lord there is hope so yes we need to follow the right leader and if you recognize you're following the wrong leader you quit following them now so that you can find the right leader and you strive hard against hypocrisy by walking humbly in light of the cross let me just in closing encourage you with the promise that's wrapped up in this. Just like every other point and place in this teaching, there is assurance and there is warning. Following blind men will lead you off a cliff. If you are trusting in blind people, if you are trusting in worldly wisdom, if you are pursuing worldly things, you are following the wrong leader. Be warned, it leads to death turn to Christ. Trust Him alone. Believe in Him and be saved and be called child of God. And for those of us that are striving for this, look at the promise. If you follow someone, you become like them. My greatest fear is that you'll become like me. You'll be calling people idiots in the museum. You'll never say it out loud because, you know, we just don't do that kind of thing. I don't want you to become like me, at least not in the places where I fail. I want you to look like Jesus. I want his image restored in you. I want his testimony to shine out of this church so brightly that we won't be counting people to make ourselves feel good but they will be welcoming people in because they will be enjoying the benefit and blessing of the beauty of our Creator who chose to be our Savior. You see, because the benefit doesn't end in getting to look like our teacher. We actually get to be a part of His process and we actually have the opportunity to be beneficial to other people. You look like your teacher, and when you've dealt with the, 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 the tree that's in your eye, the beam that's taken out of your eye, you can actually help your brother. We become a benefit to one another. I long for that because in the end, in the end, we see God's name glorified, and we see his people blessed, and we are good for one another. That's the mission he's called us to, and that's how we're going to see it accomplished. Let's pray. Father, oh, we need you. We need you to wrestle with us in our rebellion. We need the grace of the tension that your spirit convicts us with. Help us to follow the right leaders. Help us to not walk in hypocrisy, but rather to be humble. Would you help us? Jesus, would you remind us of the blessing that comes with the cost? Would you go ahead of us, Spirit? Would you convict us of our sin that we might walk in repentance? We need you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.